Well, we had an interesting conversation yesterday, which tried to um, understand the relationship between micro-communities, decentralization. What's a micro-community? I'm not aware of that. So uh, it's a good question. Uh, micro-networks. Micro-networks, micro, micro networks, sorry. I don't know why I keep saying the word community, because it's not really my thing to think about community. But anyway, something in my head is blocking the word network in micro. Micro-networks. Um, the relationship between micro-networks, um, decentralization in general, um, or, or unbundling, it's kind of the same thing. And, um, and also what's going on with uh, blockchain and Bitcoin. And, 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 and uh, they're related in, in some way. Um, there's a common theme, and we discussed it. So we can start any way you want there. All right, well, uh, that's take one I'm trying to start. So go ahead, take two. So, so let, let's, I mean, let's start. Actually, your question, what are micro communities, is as pertinent as to what are micro networks? Because I, I, I don't know that um, this is a, a topic everyone's thinking about yet, but micro network is basically another way of describing real life. Um, <clears throat> in real life, we all participate in all kinds of, conversations, some of which are related to our interests, some of which are related to our life um, uh, with other people, families and work, um, some of which, um, you know, they can be related to anything really, but they, they involve a, a, a subset of the human race that shares that common interest in that thing. And, and ever since the internet came along, people have tried to build software to reflect the needs of micro-networks. So a micro-network is just <clears throat> a, part of, a part of your life, your interests or, or whatever, and everyone has lots of them. Well, let, let me interrupt here. The, um, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night last night uh, realizing that uh, the app that we're using, uh, the Gilmore Gang app, and uh, this format that we're uh, uh, developing on uh, Anchor, uh, the podcast uh, creator uh, slash uh, publisher network, and uh, you know, by extension, the uh, the larger uh, Gilmore Gang uh, shows, G three, etc. We have. Uh, this is a micro network. It's not a question of discussing it. It's a question of implementing it and uh, using it. Yeah. And well, the, yeah. the reason that I, that, that I, I, I bring this up is because uh, uh, Betaworks Studios had a session that was uh, videoed on uh, Facebook Live with uh, two authors, uh, one who I was... Uh, very much aware of. I've seen him in uh, some corporate uh, uh, meetings, etc. Malcolm Gladwell. And the other person uh, was uh, ostensibly the focus of the conversation, which was Stephen Johnson. Are you familiar with him? I'm not as familiar with Stephen Johnson, of course. <clears throat> I know Malcolm Gladwell's work. So this was an hour and a half, and uh, as is 
uh, customary, or at least in my experience with podcasts, you sample it at the beginning and you see whether or not it can hold your attention. And this one did uh, for a number of reasons that uh, were surprising to me, namely uh, the, uh, the humor of uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, there were various uh, discussions around uh, Stephen Johnson's book, uh, the name of which escapes me, uh, where, uh, and then this was all followed by a, a Q&A period where people were asking uh, questions of one or the other or both. And uh, Stephen Johnson kept uh, sort of passing the baton uh, to Gladwell and he would basically shake his head and pass the, you know, with a hand gesture, pass it back to uh, Stephen Johnson. There was a great deal of uh, respect going in both directions between the two. So there was uh, an interesting balance there. Yeah. So uh, I, it was on Facebook Live. Uh, uh, there was a newsletter that I got from uh, Betaworks uh, that uh, pointed out this conversation. I uh, clicked on the share button and shared it into the app. Uh, at the moment that I did that, there was also another uh, conversation that I've had, which I haven't finished editing. There was a glitch in the middle of the recording, uh, so I had to, we had to sort of overlap uh, with Dennis Pombriand, uh, and it was about micro-networks. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, carefully, uh, like this conversation, we'd have a, a, a long conversation that we didn't record uh, about what we think is interesting about this moment. And so it's not, hasn't been published yet. So the only uh, listener that is aware of it other than uh, Dennis is me. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it, it suddenly occurred to me uh, in the middle of the night that this was an operational micro network because it's in addition to the uh, material that uh, flows through the app uh, by contribution, people posting uh, citations and links to uh, printed content, etc. There was also this emerging, uh, you know, podcast wave, uh, which this drafts a, a little bit off of. I mean, the Gilmore Gang was probably the second podcast uh, going back to the beginning with Dave Weiner and uh, Adam Curry, but. Uh, you know, this experience and the sort of capturing of podcasts uh, as a tool of not just uh, micromedia, if you pardon the expression, but also mainstream media. Yeah. Actually, at that time, I did a podcast called Earnings Cast. Um, I remember being in Stanford University. I think you were there and Weiner was there at the, one of the first podcast meetings. And I realized that podcasting could be very powerful. And I realized that um, every company that does an earnings call has a community of people who are interested in it, mainly analysts, um, but that it's pretty hard to get access to the earnings calls um, in delayed time. It's pretty easy to get them in real time if you're an analyst, but, but you can't um, subscribe and get them on demand later. So I created a podcast and I took basically every earnings call and podcast it. 
and created an archive and, a, and, and um, got lots of hedge funds and analysts subscribing to it, which in their own right are kind of micro communities as well, micro networks, sorry. Every time I say community, you should find me five bucks. Yeah, but what, what, what is five bucks? Exactly. Is that fiat currency or, or what? Fiat's fine. Uh, uh, that's a lot of Bitcoin these days. <laughs> <laughs> really? You can, you can own Ripple. Uh, yeah, by losing a couple of bets. But um, Stephen Johnson's book is called "Where Good Ideas Come From." Well, that maybe he evidently writes uh, a book. He has two or three or four uh, books simultaneously uh, in production uh, well, the, at any one time. So, well, that one in particular is quite relevant to what you're saying because um, it 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 makes the point that good ideas come from what he calls adjacencies. And uh, that is to say, things that are possible given what already exists, but haven't yet come about. Um, uh, so, it, so adjacency is relative to what exists. And if you think about micro networks, it's, um, it's a whole spider's web of adjacencies. Uh, that is to say, people who, who uh, have similar but not exactly the same interests talk to each other. Um, so Gladwell and Johnson and the Gilmore gang would be adjacencies in that sense. But, yeah, and, and so would, uh, you know, the reference to uh, your uh, initial podcast and, uh, and just in general, the idea of podcasts uh, being pigeonholed as on demand when in reality... Uh, in a, a world of information glut, uh, the choices that are made in terms of absorbing information involve a certain degree of time shifting and, you know, a, a whole bunch of different levers uh, with which this kind of there that's there inside uh, this body of, uh, of signal, uh, it, it, it's really a compelling uh, it's like the Firesang Theater uh, basically uh, used to say, or at least I used to say about them, which was the, uh, so they called themselves some, at one point the theater of the mind. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the idea of production value as a producer or a director, uh, there's nothing that beats the imagination because everybody uh, who's listening or involved in that uh, experience is basically the producer, director, executive producer, funder, creator, founder, etc., of this universe that is everything that they expect it to be plus everything that they would like it to be. Yeah. So, so it's kind of interesting if you if you if you take if you run with that and you ask the question, like you said, the Gilmore Gang is a micro network. Well, that's true, but what the app does is manifest it for each other, each, everyone who's part of the network, and allows you to participate in the network in a way that enhances the, what you would do before the app. So the Gilmore Gang predates the app and was a micro-network before the app, but the app manifests it. And, um, you know, in a, in a way, Twitter tries to play that role. Uh, t t Twitter has, using hashtags mainly, the ability to cluster content around topics 
and people. Um, but it does a really poor job of managing the adjacencies, as in it's all mixed up. It's really hard to separate. It's really hard to engage without also having to see stuff you don't care about. Uh, and, and so, you know, from the world view of software, Twitter really does a bad job of allowing micro communities to manifest themselves. They ah, exist. There you go. Five dollars. Thank you. Uh, sorry, micro networks uh, to manifest themselves, uh, e even though they are there, they're, they're buried inside. Whereas the Gilmore Gang app um, is a very clear, delineated um, manifestation of the Gilmore Gang micro network. Now, how could the Gilmore Gang app help other micro networks also manifest themselves to create this adjacency that is clear? and discoverable it feels like that's the next question yeah so i i let me just kind of uh remove a little bit of the friction here uh around the use of the phrase micro communities micro networks uh i i understand what you're saying about the the gang uh the you know show uh, the conversation as being a micro network but i i think that it embodies to a certain extent, uh, the no, the activity of a micro network rather than being a micro network, uh, and you know I think why you go to uh, communities, micro communities, is because of this adjacency uh, idea yeah. uh, that there's something in between uh, the uh, uh, you know the individual bits, uh, the so-called content. There's this layer of metadata. There's this layer of social, uh, not hierarchy, but uh, not rank either. Something that's kind of a glue, a social glue that operates uh, mm -hmm. as kind of a primordial soup that, uh, that these semi-related uh, nuggets of interest uh, can sometimes fire off as a synapse or... Yeah, you know, some other explanation to create something that's beyond uh, anybody's expectations. Yeah, I, I even think that adjacency is too weak a, a word. I think it's overlapping because uh, adjacency suggests separateness when in fact um, they're, not, they're not separate. They're, they're, it's, like, it's more like a, a bubbles overlapping than it is like a spider's web. Right, well, the, you know, often when we look at the uh, Venn diagram of social clouds that emanate uh, on Twitter. Uh, you know, we're seeing. Uh, you know, there's the the first person, or uh, I, I forget how it, it would be uh, managed as a concept. But the, basically, I follow uh, 400 people, 300 people. Of those, uh, we get down to the Dunbar number of around. Uh, you know, maxing out of like 100, 150 people uh, that I subscribe to the live notifications of. So that, that's a smaller uh, uh, cloud circle. Uh, yeah. And yeah. then each of those people has uh, a, a similar kind of cloud, which is composed of who they're interested in, who they uh, create as a kind of micro, maybe that's a micro community. 
that they then derive certain signal from. And the combination of the overlapping Venn diagram of those circles, uh, although it's difficult to manage, it seems to me to be uh, where the true uh, synergy of uh, this kind of a network uh, evolves. I, I agree, but use me as an example and speak to this then. So I, uh, I use the, the gang app for everything related to the gang, uh, which is really about tech. So it, it, it spills over outside the gang into all the things and it's about politics. So ultimately it's really about the people and a bunch of themes that we, that, that we talk about and share in common and, and argue and discuss about. Now, in another zone, I use the Telegram app for a lot of crypto-related stuff because all the people that are doing crypto always create these Telegram groups, and that's where they talk about it. And um, then I use um, Apple News for Manchester United-related stuff where everyone that is interested in Manchester United can see what's going on. Now, this just for those of us who don't care, that's a... a... Soccer. That is an English soccer team. It's the richest sports franchise in the world with almost a billion fans worldwide. But, but it's okay. Well, uh, speaking as a Yankee fan, I don't care, but uh, I'm growing more and more fond of it as the years go by. Yankees are number two, actually, by, measured by value. But, uh, so they're, they're up there. But anyways, um, the reason I think the gang app is important is because compared to the other two, it engages um, in, in so many different ways. Like, think about this Anchor podcast. This, in this particular podcast, Anchor plays the role of a tool, enabling us to have a conversation that can be shared with others through the gang app. Um, and, and, you know, so Anchor isn't a micro-network, it's a tool for a micro-network. The more micro-networks manifest themselves, the more customers Anchor's gonna have. So it, it, it feels as if Anchor would find it hard, well, couldn't play that role in Apple News at all. So vis-a-vis -vis Manchester United, it, because Apple News is not enough of a micro-network uh, tool. It's, it's a poor tool for that micro-network. It's just a newsfeed, uh, like, a bit like RSS was. Um, and Telegram really can't play that role because Telegram's a chat-centric tool that's real-time. Uh, you can always go on demand, but it's really hard to discover stuff, and things are not properly organized or clustered. So it feels as if the gang app is a step towards how to manifest a micro-network and give it um, ongoing presence, if you like, over time with lots of different ways that, that those micro-networks want to use to interact with each other and the world. All right. So, what is it that uh, what is it that you see uh, that comes out of that uh, experience? What comes out that of is it, valuable. What comes out of it is um, a way to be part of a micro network, engage with it, contribute to it on your own terms. You know, it, it isn't pushing you to engage, although there are notifications and, and, and alerts that keep you aware of things. It's really, um, I can go into the gang app and I can look at every person, uh, the, what they've posted, what they've liked, what they've uh, uh, shared, 
and so on and so forth. Um, uh, assuming you publish this into the app, I can listen to all of the GGXs going back. Um, uh, it uses hashtags, so you know that's it's possible to pull things within the micro network out uh, by subtopic or sub theme. So it, it's just a more comprehensive um, organizer of a micro network in a way that Twitter c couldn't be because. With Twitter, all the overlaps and adjacencies get mixed up with each other. So you can't pull the Gilmore gang out of Twitter and, and have this constant um, thing. So the, you, you don't like it when I say this, but the nearest equivalent to me is the news groups that existed on the internet back in the mid-90s, which for all their faults, people took them over and things like that. And there was no curation and no organization, no leadership. Um, so they were, they were bad in lots of ways, but the one thing that was good about them is they created a magnet for people interested in that particular thing, which could be very granular. Um, eventually it didn't work well and the internet really hasn't produced anything that does work well ever since. And the Gilmore gang app feels to me to be, to have a lot of the elements that any micro network would need to exist outside of the real world in a, in a digital sense. All right, so what I'm trying to tease out of here is a, a, a crystallization or at least some sort of uh, sketch of what uh, the micro network value proposition is. Um, happiness is uh, the bottom line. I mean, what makes anyone more happy than um, being with, hanging out, interacting with people who share a passion with them of some kind, whatever that passion is. Um, so, so a micro network is just improved version of life because you already have these micro networks in life. Like I went to a Christmas party last night with people I know really well, but I hadn't seen a lot of them for more than a year. Um, and there's no software a version of our relationship that's been ongoing in between times. So it's a purely analog set of relationships. Uh, when you digitize relationships, which is, I think, what a micro network is doing, um, and relationships not just meaning people, but the topics that they share in common and have a passion for, that is, uh, that creates permanence and the ability to dip in, dip out, contribute or listen on an ongoing basis. So it maintains uh, um, this permanence um, and, and um, uh, about something that makes you happy. So, uh, so it's human, well, at the very core, it's ubiquitous human need. Well, I don't want to get too Maslow uh, <laughs> you know, here, thank you. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I sort of recoil at the use of the word happy because uh, I, I don't know. One of the interesting things about Gladwell uh, on this uh, recording uh, was uh, he has this uh, enormously uh, biting uh, and uh, arch sense of humor. But it's, it's represented or expressed by not saying anything. Uh, 
uh, it, it's not even, uh, you know, the raised eyebrow. It's, it's more uh, this blank slate, but you, you pour into it this kind of... Uh, Silence. The, yeah, and, uh, but understanding, you know, the actual listening that's going on. Uh, he was a combination of uh, quiet but intensely participating, mm. which was a, a, a fascinating uh, kind of experience. And uh, I'd seen him talking about whatever he talks about, uh, or at least coming from that focus. Uh, and uh, that's one experience. But this was something... Uh, completely different. And interestingly, he started a podcast, uh, which I just, before we uh, started, I checked into it and there was a conversation with Nile Rogers, who the uh, uh, producer uh, and uh, writer, guitar player of Chic, and he produced uh, Bowie and a whole bunch of people. And I was lucky enough to be in the studio with him uh, when he was producing Grace Jones' record. So I know the guy and was just starting to listen to it. Uh, and the, the show is introduced by uh, Malcolm, who, who then basically says that there's this uh, colleague of his, there are three names, and I've forgotten who they are other than Malcolm, uh, it was in, it talked with Nile Rogers in the studio. So he starts, he gives this kind of sense of, presence and uh, context without really saying a lot. Mm. Uh, and I mean, he said who now was, and then boom, passes it off. And it, it's, uh, so anyway, the reason that I keep sort of uh, trying to plumb the depths of this uh, there, there uh, inside the app is because there's that same kind of still I don't know what you called it, uh, you know, presence of, uh, of the aggregate group. Mm -hmm. and, Permanent, and permanence. I, I said permanence. So anyway, but, but anyway. You, it's, yeah. it's somewhat, there's a, there's a there there that's sticky. It, it doesn't necessarily present itself uh, in obvious ways. In fact, a lot of the things... Uh, that I find uh, compelling about it are uh, what isn't in the in the app. Uh, you know, the I have always made it uh, since I'm the largest uh, continual poster going back to when we were testing it, which we still are. The uh, uh, I, I felt that one of the missions of the app, and in general, uh, what we do on the gang and uh, and the hopefully in these conversations is to uh, not uh, endlessly dwell on Trump or whatever it is that everybody already has had too much of, but rather uh, use the context of being aware of that general. I, I'd say most of the posts that are in the app are not about tech, they're about Trump. Uh, interestingly, because it, 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 there's this sense of outrage and this sense of hope and possibility that uh, something will, can be done, etc. cetera, uh, both of which I think are, uh, you know, largely ephemeral. I don't think that anything can be done about it uh, in any immediate sense. But the, uh, the media, which is the other basic flow uh, it, through the 
through this uh, social cloud is uh, is defined by uh, not just brevity but quality or context or insight uh, that can be derived from the relationships between these different pieces. Well, it's, for me, the word it's depth. So why do I like being part of the gang? Um, I like the people, even, even, and I disagree a lot with all kinds of different points of view of different people, but I fundamentally like all the people. They're honest, clear-thinking. Um, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far with me, but go ahead. Um, I, 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 so number one, the people. Number two, the ability to, to have depth. Um, it's really, really hard to get depth when um, everything is both ephemeral and short form. You know, um, BuzzFeed being a great example of, of, of the, the opposite, the, the, the lack of depth. Um, and depth is a precondition for knowledge. And if society is prepared to not have knowledge but just have opinion, then that's detrimental to the human race. So one of the things that micro-communities are good at is depth because the people involved in them care and think about and examine whatever their topic is way beyond the norm. <clears throat> now, the hard bit is how you access, access depth because accessing depth is time-consuming. And we're living in a time where people don't want to spend time. You know, the very fact of doing audio or video rules out a lot of people from engaging because they want a quick, snappy headline with a couple of paragraphs. So I think there is some kind of fundamental societal malaise that we address. Um, but that doesn't mean we're successful because the audience for depth has to engage with it. And that's well, there's, there's an interesting uh, thing that occurs to me when you say what you just said, which is that, uh, the, like for example, this uh, conversation with, uh, uh, at Betaworks, uh, it's uh, you know, 90 minutes, hour and a half, and uh, there's no way that I would listen to it you know, I, I wouldn't listen to this podcast. It's just already, it's 31 minutes. It's already too long. Yeah. But, but it, it's not too long if uh, you can hear the thinking that's going on and you can hear the discovery. Because, it, you know, if you discover something or I discover something, the chances are that due to this kind of affinity or these adjacencies, I'm not going to throw that away. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there's... Uh, there's the likelihood that there are going to be other people that are going to have those uh, it, that impact of putting two and two and two and two together. And uh, but uh, what I was going to say about based on what you said was that it, it's okay not to listen to the, to something. And in fact, the signal about not listening is as valuable, if not more valuable than the signal of who, who is listening. Yeah, from one point of view, I think that's true from one point of view. You know, the, you just reminded me of um, Dave Weinberger, 
Dave Weinberger, for those who don't know him, is the guy who was one of the first guys who, who understood the power of metadata. Um, back, back in the 90s, actually, he wrote, he wrote books for Esther Dyson's. Um, um, it was called, um, what was it called? Something 1.0. Uh, PC Forum was the... Was the release release 1.0. And Dave Weinberger wrote this great um, uh, edition of Release 1.0 all about metadata. And, um, you know, it, it immediately takes me to this podcast that I listened to by this English guy called Harry Stebbings. And Harry Stebbings is called 20 Minute VC. And um, it, 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 he, Stebbings does a really, really good job of interviewing venture capitalists and uh, getting to the essence of what they're about. But because he knows that the audio doesn't expose the metadata of what the content is within, he, and he's, this kid is 20 years old, by the way, and he figured this out all by himself. He does headlines and bullet points on every podcast that, um, without giving away what's in the podcast, um, hint at the questions that the podcast addresses or the, or the problems it seeks to deal with. And that's all in the metadata. And it, it does a very good job of getting you to listen to it because of the way he does it. And I, so somehow the relationship between content and metadata is key to discovery. So uh, you had mentioned at the beginning uh, something about uh, blockchain. Obviously, we're going through, at least in the crypto area, we're going through a, uh, you know, what looks like the crash uh, of whatever year that was when uh, the internet blew up the first time. 2000. Yes. Uh, and I, I remember being in Palo Alto uh, in a, one of these fast food or kind of wasn't a bar, wasn't a, it was, you just basically sat around and there were these TV screens uh, scattered among these, you know, these tables that are high tables where you sort of sit up yep and uh you know and the everything was just going you know that world was just blowing up and it it, it feels like that now but there's also well you you're much more involved in that than i am I, i'm basically i've been waiting for this to happen before i took it at all seriously uh you're not in that camp right no i mean um I, I was part of the 2000 thing as well. I, I had a company filed for an IPO in March 2000 at a valuation over a billion dollars, uh, real names, that um, I actually was live on CNN with Steve Barmer from Microsoft the day the bubble burst, announcing a deal between real names and Microsoft for the distribution of real names through their browser, Internet Explorer, um, worldwide. And the first question on the CNN um, show was, uh, Keith, does the market crash give you any pause? And on that particular day, my answer was, markets come, markets go. You know, we're in this for the long run. It's not going to affect us. Um, and I, and I, I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, so is that your answer now? So, well, except if you contextualize. So, I mean, use real names as an example. Um, today, when you go in the browser, Chrome, let's say, and you type a search term 
not in Google search engine, but in the browser address bar, that's real next. We invented that. When you pay for a keyword on Google um, through their AdWords, that's real names. We were the first people in the world to sell keywords on searches. And Google was our partner. They called it I'm Feeling Lucky, and they put it at the top of the search results. So, yes, the, the, the crash had a financial impact on that company at that time. Not too bad, by the way. We survived and raised money, and it was all good. But, um, but what it didn't impact is the long-term um, the long-term embedding of the real names insight, which was typing keywords and going to places is a good human experience, that didn't get killed. And it's now very valuable, it's just that Google is reaping the rewards of it, not real names. Right, but what's the analogy to- So, so, so the analogy to, to blockchain is, um, not, uh, blockchain is fundamentally about the next architecture of the cloud. It, it's, it's, it's about taking the cloud from its, um, let's call it, wholly owned fiefdoms to distributed protocols. Uh, and a distributed protocol is, um, that's what TCPIP was compared to the prior networking protocols that existed before TCPIP. It was, it was distributed and open and new endpoints could rise up without asking permission of all the other endpoints, and it opened up the growth of the network to be spontaneous. All right, so that, that, had, uh, that res resonates with uh, what RSS did. Uh, uh, RSS really, uh, so in my world, I, I'd describe it, yes, but I'd put it in a different context. What happened is in the first era of the web, we got portals, which were, of course, centralized. Um, and you had to go to the portal to read the content that the portal published. Um, what RSS did is it took the content from those portals and enabled you to consume it without going to the portals. So it decentralized the content. Um, and, you, and you as an individual were able to re-centralize it from multiple sources in your RSS reader. So it disaggregated centralism. Um, and, and blockchain is, is also disaggregating centralism uh, using protocols. So, for example, take um, Filecoin. Filecoin is, is using something called IPFS, which is a file system that is, has all the characteristics of Dropbox or Box or AWS's S3 um, for storage, but without a centralized uh, owner, it's just a protocol, um, and um, it, uh, you have to pay in Filecoin to store stuff. So the coin is the way that the network gets rewarded. So suddenly you have um, protocols with rewards for use going to holders of the coin, um, and the network effect drives the coin's value up because usage goes up. So suddenly rewards and usage are aligned. Um, but outside of the context of companies, there's no company that's getting all those rewards. It's, it's the holders of Filecoin, which is distributed. So, so it's... A so just, just to turn this around, uh, what about this uh, innovation uh, is causing this uh, value crash? 
that well it, it's the same as the internet uh, in the early days of any new um architecture which seems to be um the next the next iteration of the internet as a platform um speculation runs towards it and uh, gets rewarded initially as well because in the very very early days no one knows what's valid and what isn't valid so between um the middle of 2017 and the first quarter of 2018 we were in a frenzy of speculation which drove up the the um, the speculative value of all the tokens went up separate from the underlying use of the architectures the tokens uh, were built for so you had this separation between speculation and use and um, as is always the case speculative value can't survive so at some point people start selling and um, the price crashes down to the lowest price possible um, given the actual use of the network protocols and that's where we're at now um, and, and it, 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 if you believe that um, a distributed cloud is going to emerge and the blockchain our blockchains, plural, is going to be part of that, then um, you should be buying these tokens at some point because their value will reflect the use of the network. If you don't think the network will grow up, you shouldn't be buying them because then it's just speculative value. But, uh, I mean, with the RSS example, uh, the value was not uh, expressed in terms of people buying RSS shares. Uh, well, it was, well, that's be, it was, yeah, that's true. But that's because the, the, the Internet up until now had no way of financially rewarding the use of the network other than through company structures. Um, the only way you could turn use into value is creating a company with shares, building software and having people subscribe to it or use it in large enough quantities that you can advertise to them. But that was, I would suggest that our RSS, uh, although it ultimately was uh, uh, replaced or at least extended uh, by the social graph, uh, aka Twitter, and to some extent Facebook, the, uh, the, the immediate value was a decentralization of who the publishers were. And with podcasting, yeah, podcast extension to RSS, the attachment, yeah, uh, it, it, that also replaced uh, the notion of transmitters and FCC licenses as well. Uh, you could basically create a small micro network uh, based on uh, you know the experience and the you know, that metadata layer you were talking about, where people would suddenly start to realize that they could uh, uh, share in these adjacencies. And that's where uh, I think we are right now. Um, you're right, but what was missing was the ability to form a company to make money from that. So um, let, let's say somebody would have invented- Well, I mean, uh, Twitter's made a little bit of money and Facebook's made a lot of money. So what do you mean? Uh, I mean, I mean, prior to Twitter and Facebook in the, in the pure RSS phase. And in, in many ways, that's one of the reasons Twitter and Facebook came about is how do you, 
how do you make money from streams? Um, I don't know if you remember, there was the whole narrative at that time was streams. And um, streams were uh, given for free by publishers and stream readers were free. Like, like, uh, and, 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 you know, things like uh, Feedly and um, also um, the, the servers in the cloud that um, were aware of posts like Dave Weiner's web, web, web blogs, um, Inc., I think it was called, and uh, the one that, uh, that Dick um, Costello uh, uh, sold to Google, um, Feed, Feed, Feed Press, I can't remember what it was called. Feed Burner. Yeah, Feed Burner. Um, they, were, they, they weren't commercial entities that could earn revenues. So you had protocols, a, a little bit like with TCP or, uh, or SMTP, you had protocols that were valuable in a human sense um, uh, and therefore grew and, and became huge. Um, but there was no commercial uh, ability to get paid or rewarded for contributing to all of that stack. And then, so what happened is you got all these walled gardens like Facebook and Twitter figuring out how to monetize streams um, or feeds. And, um, uh, but it doesn't follow that just because uh, it devolved into a two-horse race or whatever it is that, uh, you know, among so-called commercial or centralized uh, environments, it doesn't follow that, uh, that blockchain uh, is going to somehow disrupt that while well, well, it, it, it might establishing not, revenue. It, it may not, but it has an innovation, and it's the key innovation that makes it at least possible. And that is that the use of protocols earns value to the people who provide the resources required for the protocols to run. And that's done through tokens or, or, or coins. So the, the, the relationship between a blockchain and a token is the innovation. Um, not just that it's distributed, but it gets rewarded as it gets used. Uh, and, and that allows value, um, not through companies, but through simply through network use uh, to start to grow. If you go back in time to when equities were first invented, it was like a revelation. Suddenly you could own a fractional piece of a company. Well, tokens are as profound in their impact as equities uh, at that level of abstraction because it allows you to be rewarded for a fractional piece of the network. Collectively, it's the whole network. And the, and, and the network meaning the use of a single protocol that you invented and created this token for. So it, it's a massive innovation in the possibility of a different way of monetizing. That if it was to work, in the future, people would no longer create companies with equities. They would simply create protocols with tokens. So... Uh... You know, I think we should wind this down, uh, not because it, it, we're done, but because we just barely started. Uh, the uh, the thing that uh, I wouldn't say bothers me, but uh, is open to question, uh, is uh, this sort of religion of decentralized, uh, you know, taking uh, it, its dominant 
position uh, versus, uh, you know, Fang, uh, you know, yeah. large yeah. companies, you know, I, and uh, there was one, one also small data point. There's a, a publication called The Information that I subscribe to. And me too. Uh, yeah. So there was uh, a newsletter or something that sort of was the end of year uh, wrap uh, wrap up of uh, you know what's happening, what's important, what's going to survive, etc. Uh, written by the editor, but. Uh, in a couple of domains, there were uh, some of the uh, editors or uh, reporters uh, were weighing in. And one of them basically made the claim that Netflix was not going to survive, that it would be acquired by Apple or some, something like that. Now, uh, uh, this guy might be right, but my intuition is that he's not right. Um, and I, I think that that relates to this issue of decentralization. I mean, there's something about uh, the, uh, to me, Netflix is an extension of, as is all of binge television, you know, connected TV, uh, 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 whatever it's called, uh, peak TV. This is all uh, the outgrowth of the fragmentation of the major networks, which was started by RSS and podcasting. That's my theory, and I'm going to stick to it because uh, I don't see anything that uh, legitimately uh, happened before then or after then that had such an impact. Our, yeah. our, and, and therefore, the question in my mind is... Uh, what is it that's going to disrupt Netflix? Uh, it, is it going to be uh, acquisition by a, a, a large, you know, uh, product organized uh, company like Apple? Uh, uh, you know, so so I, I do you think so? Well, I I think there's uh, at least two overlapping histories. Um, one of them is you know, let's say halfway through its life or uh, maybe more than halfway through. And that's what you were just talking about. And that, that's the history of um, using the cloud to provide services for consumers um, like streaming movies or TV shows that Netflix represents. Um, and that is a highly centralized history of um, building up value and uh, selling it through subscriptions or other methods to to the world, and 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 I think you're right that that history is not going to stop. It's not as if suddenly centralization will give way to decentralization um, and the flip, like flipping a switch or something. So that history will go on. It's entirely conceivable that Apple would buy Netflix. It's also conceivable they won't, but it doesn't matter because it's still that centralized. Um, period, if you like, in the history of the cloud. Um, now, simultaneously with that, and at the very early stage, is, a is, is this beginning of a decentralized history, which may or may not have a big future. We don't know yet. Um, but in, in that decentralized history, you could, for example, you could imagine that the production company that made 
um, Little Drummer Girl, which is currently showing on AMC Premium, which I highly recommend as a, as a binge-watchable series. It's really good. Um, it's conceivable that the uh, people who made that could submit it to uh, a blockchain-based protocol called uh, TV Stream or something, that you as a subscriber could choose to watch it and in doing so would pay in some TV stream coin that they'd minted and that there would never be anything in between the production company and you as a consumer um, in the form of distribution channels. Um, that, that would be complete so that every TV production company or movie production company or any production would become a sole publisher and, and the network would give you access to their content, which you would pay for in whatever denomination they decided, and there'd be no middleman taking their 30% or their 20% or whatever. That, that, that is technically, it's what I call um, an unborn child and what Stephen Johnson called um, an adjacent idea. What, what, we, what I mean by it, I think he means the same, is everything technically required to create that world already, already exists. There's no invention needed. All that's needed is to start using it. Um, so, so if that... So what, about, what about the incentive of... Uh, uh, who is it who's going to be uh, deriving the benefit from the creation of the products that are going to be sold over that network? The, the same as today, the bit that goes away is the middleman. Um, so 100% of the value goes to the producer, the creator, uh, the talent, you know, um, and, and none of it goes to the distribution channel. But give me an example in history that, uh, where that actually occurred. I don't think there ever has been one because the underlying technology to make it possible didn't exist. Okay. But do you think that's what was the gating factor uh, in that never happening? Yeah, I think distributors always added value, a lot of value, actually. The further you go back, the more value they added. And in fact, you couldn't have gotten copyright law unless that was true, um, that, 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 uh, you know, where you buy the rights um, from the artist um, uh, because the artist needs you. Um, that, 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 that was always the case. So uh, middlemen, publishers, distributors are not bad people. They were essential. Um, but they're becoming unnecessary, or, or they could. I'm not saying they are going to, but it's technically possible now for them to become unnecessary. And so if they choose to, it, and it'll be interesting, the first production company that doesn't sell, you know, doesn't go to Sundance and doesn't sell the rights, but rather publishes itself and gives you a way to consume with no one in the middle. That'll be an interesting day when that happens. Well, I mean, Louis C.K. did that with uh, his uh, uh, concerts, which he filmed, uh, you know, uh, paid for, uh, owned the master. Yeah, and so now- and made a lot of money on so, so now imagine that in a crypto world, basically me and my wife would have to have a wallet full of let's call it stream coins. And every time we watch something, it would be deducted from our wallet and put in the wallet of the producer. Um, and the more stream coins got used, the higher the price of a stream coin would become. So basically, the, 
producer would benefit directly through their own currency for the use of their, the network for their stuff. That, that's as simple as, okay, instead of subscribing to AMC or YouTube TV or Comcast, I'm just going to have a wallet full of stream coins and I'm going to spend them every time I watch something. Well, the, the reason, the fundamental reason why the, these things don't happen is that uh, the incumbents uh, block them. Yep. Well, because they can write big checks, but I, I, that's why I said the first company that chooses not to accept the big check, but to go down this path, as long as their content is desired, it, it, you know, it would work, for example, for NFL, because people will just do whatever it takes to see their team. It'll work, it would work for the English Premier League soccer. It might work for news. Um, it certainly would work for, for compelling news, the uh, must-see news. It might work for depth, you know, like uh, things where people who care, mic micro networks, want to consume stuff because they care about it. There's a lot of scenarios that where it would work. All right, so I think uh, the, the last one that you mentioned, I think is the most likely if it's gonna happen at all. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, marrying the uh, cost of production with the, uh, the, the uh, what you call passion or, uh, you know, the proximity uh, effect of a micro network. Yeah. All right, uh, we didn't get everything uh, in, but most of it. Yep. It was good. Okay, Keith's here. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Steve Gilmore. <laughs> See you next week or whenever. All right, bye-bye.